remember quite vividly my, pretty much my first experience at varsity was going to a church camp. That's pretty much how, how it started for, for many people. When you go to a, a new university, you go to one of the church camps, and, and, and I went on the Reformed one day in Poshostrum. And on the second night of the church camp, there was a talk that I was quite interested in. Everybody was quite interested in it. It was on Satanism, okay? Obviously, you have to do a Satanism talk in the evening, and that's exactly what, uh, what happened. And it started off with the usual suspects. I've been in church long enough to know that Marilyn Manson uh, is, is bad news, okay? So, uh, so, so the guy did a bit of an expose on the Satanism or the satanic that is involved in his lyrics, etc. Then, surprise, surprise, Slipknot. If you don't know these artists, good for you. Uh, and uh, we, we looked at these guys, and I said, oh, well, I mean, they, they look pretty, pretty bad. I, I'm not super surprised. And then, without even catching a breath, the presenter moved over to Lord of the Rings as another manifestation of the satanic. And then again, without even uh, pausing, to Narnia, okay, to, 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 to Narnia, and, and then I was, I mean, I've been, I was flustered at this point, but when you moved over to the Lion King, it became just a little bit bizarre. <laughs> a couple of days later, I'm talking about a few, a few days later, I, I was meeting up with a theology professor at his, at his house, and he told me that this whole idea of the devil is something very primitive. It is something archaic. It's a remnant of our primitive pre-scientific worldview, and it's something that we must get rid of. Within a few days, I had these two very different experiences. Now, here's the thing. It would seem that we fall into very, very familiar traps when it comes to speaking about and thinking about evil, thinking about the devil. And and C.S. Lewis, the, the, the Satanist that I learned of at my first year camp, um, in, his, in his famous uh, preface to the Screwtape Letters, he said that we fall in one of two categories when it comes to thinking about the devil and, and, and evil. And it is one, superstition, and the other one is substition. One is superstition, and the other one is substition. And he goes on and he says, that the devil is equally pleased with the magician and the materialist. <laughs> what does that mean? It means that if you are a materialist and you don't see the devil in anything, it would appear, according to Lewis, and I think many other thinkers, the devil is very pleased with you if you don't think he exists. If you see him in everything, it would appear that the devil is pleased with you. I'm going to use a bad example to try and illustrate this point, so, so please don't, don't take this too literally. But Putin, <laughs> uh, it, would, it would appear that Vladimir Putin was very pleased when he was talked about in American media for supposedly influencing the American election when Trump won. That was the talk of the town, wasn't it? Uh, Russia influenced it, mi misinformation campaigns, etc., etc. Everybody was talking about Russia's influence. Putin was very pleased that he was mentioned every, every second uh, 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 day or so. 
He was equally pleased when people said, Russia is not really a force to be reckoned with. We don't have to worry about Russia. They are, they are not really a player on the world stage anymore. It would appear like both those, those reactions to Putin was uh, something that pleased him. Again, don't over, take it over literally. I think in these times it's very easy to demonize somebody like Putin. And I, I don't think the guy is great, but I also don't think he's the devil. But the strategy, I'm, I'm, I want you guys to just focus on the strategy that I think uh, uh, parallels the, the, the strategy of darkness. Let me use one more example, which I think is slightly better. There is a frog called the horned frog. Okay, a very creative name, the horned frog. I think it's originally from Argentina, and it's an ugly, ugly thing, all right? So you can imagine a frog is already not pretty. Put horns on that frog, and it's really you know, not something that you want to keep as a pet. And apparently, when the horned frog is under attack or when there's some sort of threat, what he does is he puffs himself up, and then all these horns, it's, it seems very spiky. He's very scary. And if you come closer still, you know what it does? It rolls over and pretends to die. Two strategies to keep himself alive. Either he wants to scare you off with his scary horns and his scary facade. Um, it's, so he's basically saying, I'm big, I'm scary, stay away. And if that doesn't work, he says, I'm dead, nothing to see here, move along. And it remains alive. Now, I think... Although the, what, what I'm going to call the satanic panic is, is alive in, uh, in, in the world, especially in a place like Pretoria, okay? I think the satanic panic, in other words, people who, who see Satan everywhere, there are a lot of churches in Pretoria, which is sort of the little Bible belt of, uh, or sort of the Bible dot here in South Africa. Um, it, it's, it's not necessarily something that we struggle with the yeah, dialogue, but it's definitely in the culture around us. Would you guys agree? You, you, you bump into this uh, very, very often. I remember when I did my master's on superheroes, and I, I was quite excited about superheroes, and I was doing a master's in theology on superheroes. I met this lady, and she asked me what I'm doing, and I said, I'm doing that. And she said, oh, that's so good. We really need somebody to, to focus on, on the satanic in superheroes. I thought, okay, no, no, you're completely missing, uh, missing the point. I'm, I'm going in a completely different direction. Just, just think of the reaction to the Harry Potter books and movies at one point. It was what everybody talked about, right? Meanwhile, I remember reading an article where they asked J.K. Rowling, the, the, the author of Harry Potter, so, so what's your position on faith, by the way? And he said, she said rather, that, um, ach, let's, no, okay. Um, she, she said, uh, she said that, that no, no, no. Uh, let's try and rephrase. Yeah. She said um, that she she doesn't want to she doesn't want to be very obvious about her uh, her religious position because then it will reveal how Harry Potter is going to end. What? What is that? How does Harry Potter end? Spoiler alert: Harry Potter dies in an act of sacrificial love, and the Harry Potter book says that is the greatest power of them all, sacrificial love. J.K. Rowling is a very active member in the Church of Scotland, but yet the satanic panic saw, saw things everywhere. And uh, at one point, monster energy drink, not sure if you guys got that little thingy, the, the mark of the, of the beast, and then, 
and then lately, thank you America, by the way, uh, you've got these QAnon guys uh, who sees this satanic pedophile ring everywhere. And, and it is just a lot, of, a lot of silliness. And I think that Lewis is correct in saying that the devil is pleased. The devil is pleased with this overemphasis. But like I said earlier, I don't think that is our problem at, at dialogue. I think, I think our problem, and I'm speaking on your behalf now, but I think our problem is mostly we are substitutious. For us, at least for me, let me speak for me, myself. For myself, the devil has been an annoying and a little bit embarrassing part of my theology. And when I meet sophisticated people, I don't want them to ask me about that because it's going to make me look a little bit silly, all right? And I think for many of us, our worldview struggles to make sense and accommodate evil and the devil. So what's happened in a lot of theology circles, and I referenced it when I referred to uh, my, my theology professor at, at Varsity, um, for a long time now, Christians, especially in the Western world, has tried their best to persuade uh, other people that they are super rational, and they've tried to persuade people who are, who are seeing the devil somewhere that the devil doesn't really exist, okay? That this is, this is a mythology, that is, it's a misunderstanding, it's a misreading of scripture. And this has led to at least two interesting things. The one is that the church in Africa, the church in South America, the church in Asia, they are usually quite ready to listen to a lot of the, the influences coming from the Western world. But it's been, it's, it's been almost comical how they've just ignored the West's instruction when it comes to the devil. So whenever, when, whenever African churches are told, uh, no man, the devil is it's just sort of pre-scientific, um, the Bible is trying to, it's, it's a different way of talking about epileptic attacks, etc., etc. They're saying, dude, just come to my church. Just, just come and visit. I'm not sure what it looks like in London, but if you come to Rwanda, if you come to Soweto, if you come to, to, to Africa, you're going to see a different picture of, of evil. So they, they've, they, they just haven't bought it at all. It's, it, it, it's quite comical in that sense. The second thing is, as the church started to drop the idea of the devil, of evil as a personal force, you know what happened? Hollywood picked it up. So the church starts to say, guys, no devil, we, we're trying to, to modernize scripture and uh, it's just a pre-scientific way of trying to, to explain the struggle. And you know what happens? All of a sudden, movie upon movie upon movie about what? The devil, the devil's advocate, um, the right, a movie about exorcism starring Anthony Hopkins, the exorcist, 1973, the exorcist of Emily Rose, and then probably one of my favorite ones, which was very subtle, is in The Usual Suspect. Here's Hollywood, heathen-filled Hollywood, preaching to us. And it starts off with this quote, the greatest trick that the devil ever play played on mankind is convincing him that he doesn't exist. So here, the pulpit has moved away from the church to Hollywood, all right? So when we drop something, we shouldn't be that surprised that secular culture is the one preaching to us what we perhaps need to, uh, need to hear. Now, if you're a skeptic here, maybe you're a skeptic, you don't believe in any of this, maybe you're a skeptic uh, that you don't believe in the devil, then I, you're welcome. You can be a believer in God and, and leave the devil alone. 
I mean, leave the devil alone in general, but if, if that's not something that, that fits in your theology, that's okay for now. But I want you to consider this, at least. If we acknowledge that God is the creator of everything, and we can just see how creative he is in, in everything that he create, created in the natural world. I'm talking about insects. I'm talking about horned frogs. I'm talking about South Africans. I'm talking about all these things that he, that he created. And we also acknowledge that part of his creation fell. Humans fall. Humans make bad decisions. Humans choose against God. Is it such a stretch to say that he created the spiritual realm, and within the spiritual realm, they also fell. They also moved away from God. I mean, philosophically, it's not such a big stretch, is it? Right? So it's, it's very easy to imagine a fall in this world. Just turn on the news. Is it really that difficult to imagine a fall of sorts in the spiritual realm? Whether it is or isn't an issue for you, in the biblical imagination, it's not. All right. So what we're going to look at for the next five weeks as we build up to Easter in this Lenten period is we are going to zoom in on, on evil. We are going to look at this supernatural aspect of the world because I, let me speak for myself, I noticed that I've got a very secular worldview. We're going to speak about angels in a couple of weeks. If I'm honest with myself, I don't think I believe in angels. I know I'm supposed to, but it's, it's such an awkward aspect of our, of our theology that we sort of just discard it the whole time. So, so we're going to focus on, 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 on the spiritual realm and just know that, that part of the biblical imagination is to understand that the secular world, the material world, is not all there is. And it's time that we are confronted with this much richer um, uh, understanding of, of, of spirituality and especially uh, uh, evil. Now, before we get into the text, we're close, by the way. Perhaps why we struggle with anything that is related to the satanic, anything that is related to evil with a capital E, is because of the caricatures that we described earlier. You know, people running around with olive oil, uh, people getting rid of art in their house, and that, that is demonic, and this is demonic. And, and that is a caricature. And although that's the abuse, I think, I think there's also truth in the fact that they are something like demonic possession to this day. And I, I, I don't think there's any reason to think that it stopped or that it never happened. But I want to say that those things are at best the secondary strategy of the devil, of darkness. I would not even secondary, it is way down the line in terms of his, his, his typical modus operandi. His typical modus operandi is very, very subtle. And I sometimes think that our focus on these manifestations, etc., can often be just a bit of misdirection. It's just a distraction so that we don't focus on the typical stuff. I want to read a passage to you guys that I think is about spiritual warfare, okay? And you guys are not going to recognize it as such, but, but, but pay close attention. It comes from the book of 1 Peter, the letter of Peter, um, 
and he writes to a bunch of churches in modern-day Turkey, or what, is, what used to be called Asia Minor, all right? So, so 1 Peter 5 starts like this. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, and strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That doesn't sound like your typical um, anti-Satan passage, does it? All right. But let's explore just an aspect of spiritual warfare this, uh, this, this morning. All right. The devil doesn't have a name. Doesn't have a name. So if you meet the devil, he... He will be lying if he comes up to you and say, hi, my name is Satan, nice to meet you. He doesn't have a name, he only has titles, okay? Some people even suggest that it's a dig at the Satan that he doesn't have a name. He only has a title. He is, in a certain sense, identityless, okay? So what do these titles mean? I want to focus on two titles. The one is Diablos, which means to scatter, to slander, to, to gossip, is another way of, I think, translating Diablos. And his other one that we know well, Satan, you know what that is? The accuser, the accuser. So we've got these two titles, and I think it helps us a lot to make sense of, 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 of the Satan and Diablos. All right, so Diablos loves it when humans turn away from each other. So you've got community, and here we've, we've got a little faith community. And when we are scattered, Diablos loves it. That's why he has this title. Do you know what's the easiest way to scatter a group of people that's together? Accusation. Satan. That's the easiest way to scatter a group of, of people. Let's just, let's just look at this at, at, at the macro level for a moment. Over the last few years, we've been just reminded of who our enemies are. Everywhere, whether you go to the humanities departments at universities or you just pick up the media, then we know that 
um, white people and black people are fighting this eternal war against each other. Men and women are fighting this eternal war against each other. The gays are against the, the straight people. Now it's the West against the East. It's just all of these fights, capitalism versus communism. What's happening on a constant basis? Accusation, accusation. So if you want to see the devil's work, you just have to look around you and you will see the demonic at this play when you see this constant fighting, this constant accusation that is happening between large groups of people. This is true on a macro level. On a micro level, think of your family feuds, think of the internal fights in your, in your families or in your circle of friends. What happens? Accusation comes in, gossip comes in, and then the people scatter. Isn't that what happens? We can't meet together anymore in the family. Um, no, we're not going to um, see you guys at Christmas. We're not going to see you guys there. Or just friendships stop because of accusations. In Romans 1, you know what, <laughs> what Paul does? He says, do not gossip. It is diabolical. Gossip is a, is, is, is a common pastime. We joke about gossip. You go to the salon. Obviously, I do that regularly. Why? And uh, you, you, get your little, you, you get your little gossip fix over there. People are very playful about, oh, we must get together. It's so fun because when we get together, oh, we, we gossip. It's so much fun. Paul says it's diabolical. It is a manifestation of evil. Do we think like that? And you, you can say, whoa, 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 we didn't play with the Ouija board. We didn't watch Harry Potter. We, we're clean. We're good. He says, when you gossip, it is diabolical. It is accusation. It is satanic. Are you with me? How do we counter that? How do we counter the diabolical? It's here in the passage. It says, it says the following. We counter it by being a gathering force. So not a scattering force, a gathering force. What is the word that we encounter three times here in the beginning of, of 1 Peter chapter 5? Shepherd the flock of God. He is the chief shepherd. What does a shepherd do? Gathers. When people are, when sheep are running in all different directions, the shepherd is supposed to gather. So, so, so Peter is talking about spiritual warfare, Right? And you don't have this, uh, I don't know, this guy with a cross that is sort of serves as a knife that you fight these demons with. He says, you fight evil by shepherding, by keeping people together, by being the great gathering force. That is why what we are doing this morning is spiritual warfare. People from different walks of life, just think about this, What's been going on in the media for the last couple of years? Accusations, um, white against black, women against men. Um, you, you, you've got all of these things hurting each other. And we say, no, people from different walks of life come together here at Pretoria Rugby Club at our very posh venue. And, 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 and yes, we want to be more diverse than what we are, but we've got people from the Congo here. We've got people from America. We even have people from Morleta Park. You've got... Uh, You've got people from, from all these different places coming together, a gathering force, meeting at the cross. Let's be honest, many of us 
would not have had anything to do with each other if it wasn't for the church. I've used many sport analogies in my sermons. It never works because you guys are a bunch of sport haters. I wouldn't have naturally chosen you as my friends. But because Jesus, the cross, is the gathering force, we are stuck together. It is the opposite of Diablos. Are you guys with me? Okay. Now, in this passage... There is a reference, it's subtle, but if you pay attention, you'll see it. There's a reference to a specific type of person that is susceptible to the devil. And you know who that is? Young people. Young people. Why is there a constant focus on elders, the elders among you? You guys um, must, must shepherd the flock. In First Timothy, or no, I'm lying, in Second Timothy, it says, the young must be very careful to escape the snare of the devil. Why is the young so susceptible to, to the devil? Because the devil primarily operates with ideas, with subtle lies. In John 8, when Jesus talks to the Pharisees, he says, uh, your father is the Satan, the father of lies. They didn't like it. Uh, surprise, surprise. But, but, but he describes Satan as the father of lies. When he lies, he speaks his native language. Okay? So... When Satan approaches Eve, he doesn't approach her with a Ouija board. He doesn't approach her with, um, I don't know, some sort of satanic video game or with a Marilyn Manson CD. He approaches her with an idea. With an idea. You can be like God. Right? It's an idea. It's a lie, but it's an idea. Young people are often deceived more so than, than, than older people, I would say, with various ideas. So let's just, let's just think of, of, of one such idea that can be dangerous. At the moment, we have this cult of youth going on. Nobody can tell me what to do. You've got young, young people rejecting authority all the time, and we've made it sexy. We've got t-shirts, you know, printed, I do me, you do you, you know, and you've got these little primary school kids walking around with these t-shirts, these right? It's this cult of youth. Just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. That assumes your heart is good. Don't follow your heart. Your heart is, is, is full of a lot of things. There are good stuff, but there's a lot of bad stuff there. Don't follow your heart. So what is the anecdote to that? The biblical anecdote to that is, no, submit yourself to a community of elders, Allow people who have followed Jesus for longer than you, allow them in your life. That is spiritual warfare, the most boring thing you can imagine. To go sit and just counsel somebody who's followed Jesus a little bit longer than you and ask them, I'm, I'm fighting with my wife, can you maybe help me with this? I can't quite decide what to do study-wise. What, what would you suggest? I am struggling with my family. Can you help me out with that? Spiritual warfare, according to Peter. To submit yourself under the authority of other people. Not just under anybody's authority, because when he describes how the elders should be, he says you're not allowed to, to domineer over the people. You need to submit to them. So it's a specific type of person that you need to submit to. One who actually submits to you as well. But, uh, but that's a way of fighting 
of, of doing spiritual, spiritual warfare. Okay, so, so, so thus far we've looked at two, two ways in which you can fight. The one is to not gossip, to not accuse, but to be a gathering force. That's what, what 1 Peter 5 is saying. We need to be a gathering force and that's how we fight the satanic. The second one is have a Christian in your life who's older than you, whose counsel you seek. And it, it shouldn't just be one, it can be multiple people. That's why the whole thing of elders is such an important thing in, in the biblical worldview. All right, moving on. In verse 5, Peter says, clothe yourselves in what? Humility. Humility. That might just be the primary weapon against evil. Humility. Many of us were taught that there's no such thing as a big sin and a small sin. All sin, all the same. Who of you have heard that? It's a lie, okay? There's at least one primary sin. And you know what it is? I'm going to say murder. Murder's bad. Adultery, bad. No, 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 no. I'm talking about the sin underneath all these sins. Pride. Pride. Pride is the sin of sin. If you want to figure out what is the original sin, right? Genesis 3, what is the original sin? You can be like God. Decenter God from his throne. Put yourself on that throne. You be the center of reality. You be the center of the, of the universe, of the world. As, as many of our marketing campaigns um, state, it's all about you. You decide what you want in life. It's all about you. Do what makes you happy. The original sin is pride. Okay, so what happens as soon as pride, as this original sin comes into the life of Adam and Eve, what's the first thing that they notice? They're naked. How, is that, how does that follow? They, they, they commit this first sin and then they know they're naked. Because the opposite of pride is humility. If you are humble, you don't care about yourself. You don't focus on yourself. You don't sit here and think, yes, I hope I'm looking okay. I hope I'm doing fine. I hope I'm presenting myself. You are so other-centered that you are just, you, you can just say, Reino, I'm so glad you are back. It's so good to see you. You just look at this person. I'm so good. To, it's so good to see you. Or I'm so sorry to hear about that in your life. Or you are just celebrating other people. You are so focused on God. You are so focused on other people. But when pride comes in, this, this, uh, what do you call it, the camera that is supposed to go outward turns inward and all of a sudden you notice, oh, I'm naked. I'm, I'm ashamed of myself. It's pride that came in. Many people think, no, but those people are insecure. That's not pride. No, no, no. Insecurity is pride in the sense that you worry about your opinion about yourself as opposed to God's opinion about yourself. Does that make sense? You, it, it, it's, it's a form of pride. You are putting yourself as the judge over your own life and not God. All right? So that's the first thing that happens when pride comes in. You become self-aware, shame, etc., etc. We can expand a lot on this. I'm not going to. What is the anecdote? Humility. Humility is the primary way in which we push back against, against Satan. Let's just think of the, 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 the few examples that we've looked at thus far in this passage. What happens if you clothe yourself in humility 
and you have an opportunity to accuse other people, to gossip, what would somebody who's humble do? They'll say, when, when, when we say, yes, that Louis is always doing that, and Louis is always doing that. If you are humble in, and, and, uh, to, to, to fight the scattering, what do you say? Oh, well, I'm not much better, you know. I, I do that as well. You, you draw this common aggression that was now presented or directed against one person, you share it with him. Yeah, who am I to judge? I, I mess up like that all the time as well. Or we don't know what, what happened at home that day, you know, when he made that remark or, or whatever the case may be. Can you see how humility fights slander, fights diablos? And let's look at youth, which is the other thing that, that, that Peter mentions. Youth, which is, I'm super talented, I've got so many gifts, but when humility comes in, you say, ah, you know what, I, I don't know anything. I, I really don't know everything in this world. I, I need all the people around me. I need to learn from other people. I remember distinctly my second year of varsity. I was 19 years old. I had first year philosophy under my belt, and I was the smartest person you've ever met in your life. I will never match that genius that I had back then because I went to varsity now for, for a year or so. They've given me a vocabulary, so I've got like five big words that I use interchangeably to try and impress people. I go back to my mom who lives on the, in the Platteland and all her friends are just so dumb. They don't get these things. But when you clothe yourselves in, yourself in humility, you know, you don't know anything. You don't, you don't know anything. You've got so much to learn about this world and about life. So again, it fights, it fights evil. Just think of the lack of repentance that manifests itself in, in broken relationships, family or whatever. What is the anecdote to that? When people are too proud to say sorry, too proud to cross the line and have a discussion about something that hurt each other, that is pushing people away. Humility. You can say, look, I was wrong in this and that, but I also think you were wrong in this and that. But you start off that conversation with the type of humility that does introspection, that can identify all the places where you messed up, right? It's only pride that keeps you away from that. Do you see how this is satanic is kept alive in the lack of humility, in the lack of repentance? Can I get an amen? Thank you, thank you Marcus. All right. Can I tell you, we've got two more things that comes out of this passage. I know we're diving deep and we're, getting, we're mining this passage for everything it has. Are you guys still with me? Okay. So two more things that I want to say. Did you guys notice that Peter says that you must clothe yourself in humility, you must be watchful for your adversary, the devil, and you know what he says just before that? Do not be anxious. Okay, here's the thing. When, when we think of the devil... Then we say, adulterer, yeah, you're doing the devil's work. Murderer, yeah, you're doing the devil's work. Maybe I've convinced you now, if you were a gossiper, yeah, you're doing the devil's work. You know what Peter says? Oh, you're anxious. <clears throat> Devil, right there. We don't identify anxiety as evil. You can say, oh, come on, man, I'm doing everything well. I'm giving money to the poor. I, you know, I, I support the right sports teams. I am doing everything that I can. Uh, and now... You say, just because I struggle with a little bit of anxiety, that I am, I am in the snare of the devil. That's unfair. Well, Peter says, no, you are. 
Anxiety is, is another manifestation of evil. Let's try and unpack that. We cannot unpack it, unpack it exhaustively, but let me just try and say one or two things. And hopefully one day, by the way, I will be able to practice what I preach. So my prayer this morning was just that God would not strike me with, uh, with lightning before I'm done with this sermon, because I don't do any of the things that I'm saying here, by the way. So, so why is anxiety an, a, a, a manifestation of, of evil? When you are anxious, another way the Bible understands anxiety is that you are double-minded or you are duplicit. In other words, you are not thinking about one thing, you are thinking about a thousand things. And then you cannot nail why you are anxious. Have you guys had that experience? People would ask you, why are you anxious? And he's like, I, I don't know. She's like, like the, the kids are there and I'm, I'm worried about that. And he's got a blocked nose. I'm worried about that. And work is... But you can't nail it because you are of various minds, okay? How does Jesus start this great fight against the devil with his public ministry? What is the event that starts it? Can you guys help me? What we celebrate in Lent. It is going into the desert. When you go into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, you know what's the one thing that you do not have? Distraction. You are not thinking about, okay, but what about this? What about that? What about that? You're just looking at a lot of sand and at a lot of rocks, and you are able to fight the devil because when, when people go into that monastery experience, you guys know what I mean by that, is you, you try and isolate all of these distracting thoughts from, you, from yourself. When they go into that one, in that space, this is what Christians do. They say, I must first seek the kingdom of God. That's the only thing that is important. Instead of thinking about a thousand things, I am getting rid of all the distractions around me. I'm focusing on one thing, the kingdom of God. What does he want from my life? And you know what happens? Peace comes in. If you are centered in that way, then you become peaceful. You are not anxious about all these other things trying to, to vie for your attention. This morning on my way to church, I'm praying. And you know what? I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm driving and I'm, I'm praying. And, and I think I was under the attack of the devil. You know why? Not because I got a cramp in my right leg or, um, I don't know, I, I saw an upside down cross or a cat hanging from a lamppost. I was just super distracted. I couldn't pray for us. I couldn't pray for you guys. I couldn't pray for the sermon. And I wouldn't think about bad things. I'm not thinking about porn necessarily. I'm just thinking, oh yeah, I forgot to do that. Oh yeah, um, I've got a short week this week. I, I must remember to do that. You know, sort of domestic stuff. But it's distraction. It's anxiety to a certain extent. I am not seeking the kingdom of God. All right. And the devil smiles. Okay, last point. All right, I can see that you guys are struggling. Last point. The book of First Peter is written to people experiencing a lot of oppression, a lot of suffering throughout modern-day Turkey, okay? Uh, not today, but, but <laughs> 2,000 years ago, all right? The, what is called Asia Minor, the, the, those churches. So these people are experiencing suffering, and Peter is encouraging them, and he's saying, you guys should 
should hold fast in this suffering. And again, he says, he sums it up pretty much. Chapter 5 is sort of the end of the book. He sums it up by saying, don't allow the devil to get a hold of you, to get a hold on your life. When suffering happens in our life, one of two things often happens. One is, it's a great sanctifier. It brings us closer to God. And that's what Peter describes. He says, this is going to bring you closer to God. But then he says, the other possibility is this. You look at the suffering in your life and you're saying, how can, a God, how can God allow this? And then you move away from God. You see, there's another lie that Satan wants you to believe. And that is, remember that's his primary modus operandi, lies. He wants you to believe that if you, if you follow God, you will not suffer. Everything will be okay. Life will be fine. And then, when suffering comes, you become a skeptic. Well, why would God allow this? I don't believe that God exists, or I'm walking away from my faith. The majority of skeptics that I've met in my life are what one might call wounded idealists. Wounded idealists in the sense that they had this picture of what it means to follow God. Everything is going to be fine. Everything is going to be hunky-dory. I don't have to worry about anything now. And then when, when suffering comes, they don't have the theology to make sense of it. And then they walk away from the faith. And Satan smiles. The piece of little lie, the misinformation there, is now everything is going to be okay. What is the anecdote? What does, what does uh, Peter say? How we should, how we should deal with it? He starts off by saying, I exhort the elders among you as fellow elders and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. The central aspect of our faith is God who suffered. When he followed God, that didn't mean he had this sort of sentimental hashtag blessed life. It meant that he experienced excruciating suffering. So he is grounding this idea, this lie of Satan that everything is going to be okay, is to say, just come to the cross and you will see reality over there. Are you guys with me? All right. Let me summarize what I've been trying to, to say in, uh, I don't know, m maybe a little bit of a, a convoluted way, for, forgive that. First of coming together, Christian community, persisting in Christian community, even if you are fighting with people in here, is the good fight. The opposite of that is diablos, to accuse each other, to scatter each other. God is interested in reconciliation. He is the great gathering force. That's point one. Point two is we need to submit ourselves under others. We need to allow ourselves to, uh, to, to learn from people who have gone in faith longer than us who've been Christians longer than us, and that comes from humility. Number three, we fight the good fight, spiritual warfare, by humbling ourselves. Pride is the original sin, and if that is the case, then humbling ourselves is the anecdote. Number four, something as trivial as anxiety is from the devil. That doesn't mean that you must, uh, you're gonna stop being anxious today, it doesn't work like that. The anecdote is this whole period of Lent that we are celebrating, getting rid of distractions, focusing on the one thing that is important, seeking the kingdom of God. When I was driving in my car, I saw all sorts of things that drew my attention. Perhaps what is needed is to go to a place where you do not have distractions. 
and center yourself. What is the one thing that is important? The kingdom of God. That's how you fight anxiety. And the last point, prosperity gospel is straight from the pits of hell. <laughs> if you think that if you follow God that everything is going to be okay, then, then, then Satan smiles because he, can, he, cannot, he cannot wait to knock you off your idealist pedestal and for you to swear and reject God in the process. And the anecdote to that is we don't have to go far from the cross, friends, to see that Jesus experienced suffering, but God transformed that suffering. All right. Let's pray, and then we can have a bit of a discussion about this. Lord Jesus, we, as we go into this, this period of Lent, it is our prayer that we will be reminded that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the invisible forces of this world that has various impacts on our lives, Lord. And we so, we, we so often get distracted by the, the hocus-pocus and the, the sensational version of that that we forget what is important, which is, which is to, to not go to bed angry, which is to allow other people's counsel in our lives, which is to be humble, which is to not accuse, to not partake in gossip, but to... Uh, protect other people's reputations. All of these things that, that doesn't seem glamorous, Lord, are the, are the weapons that you've given us to fight evil. And Lord, the definitive blow that you gave to evil was the cross, the most humbling act in history. And it is there, Lord, that we congregate, that we come together and Lord, when we, when we are scattered, when we are pushed in various directions, when we lose our way, it is our prayer, Lord, that we will come together under your cross and allow your cross to change our hearts, Lord Jesus, to just melt our hearts so that we can be part of the gathering force, that we can be a, a force of humility in this world that we can be a force of reconciliation in this world, Lord, and that we can be a force that is not sentimental about our faith, promising prosperity where, where, where there is none, Lord, but that we can come, come, come underneath your cross and see that your greatest suffering was transformed into the most beautiful thing in the world, and that's why our greatest suffering can likewise be transformed into something beautiful. I pray, Lord, that we will etch this into our hearts even before we are maybe confronted with that great suffering. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.